All right, Mike, we find ourselves at the end of the 11th season now. Yeah, this one has been a pretty wild ride, too. Right in the middle of uh, the Facebook papers drop, which pivoted a lot of the content we were actually planning to put together. Yeah, and then the Constitution Dow blew up, which was a pretty great story. Yeah, and then kind of deflated just as fast. Yep, yep. And crypto and NFTs are having a moment right now. But then again, it feels a bit like the 2017 ICO craze, which honestly, 90% of them turned out to be a scam. Yes, very true. But but who knows this time around as that is what we've been exploring all season, right? I mean, this concept of antitrust and how technology for all of its glorious advancements it's also helped break down the trust that we have with corporations, government, and institutions. So while this certainly won't be the last time we discuss these issues, we're going to update a few of our favorite stories from the season, starting with the antitrust lawsuits, and we're going to cover some of the NFT developments. We're going to wrap it all up in a nice bow. Right after this intro. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts. Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com AI. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. So we started this season talking about the numerous antitrust lawsuits and legislation that's moving right through the courts and Congress here in the United States. Also in rapid succession last year, President Biden named and nominated an antitrust team of Tim Wu to the newly created position of head of competition policy at the National Economic Council, Lena Khan, chair of the Federal Trade Commission, and Jonathan Cantor, who's the head of the antitrust division of the Justice Department. Each is an anti-monopolistic advocate who's written extensively on the topic of represented companies making antitrust claims against big tech. It's funny that you mentioned their writing because some of those same pieces are being used to try to dismiss some of the cases they're bringing against Meta and Google. But that 
probably won't work, right? I, I doubt it, but I mean, honestly, who knows these days? <laughs> okay, so we're going to recap some of the major developments around the numerous antitrust lawsuits and legislation, right? That's right. Congress has been hard at work this year getting answers from tech leaders on some of the toughest questions, like this exchange with Google CEO Sundar Pichai. Right now, if you Google the word idiot under images, a picture of Donald Trump comes up. I just did that. How would that happen? How does search work so that that would occur? We provide search today uh, for any time you type in a keyword. Uh, we, as Google, we have crawled, we've gone out and crawled and stored billion, copies of billions of web pages in our index. And we take the keyword and match it against web pages and rank them based on over 200 signals. Things like relevance, freshness, popularity, how other people are using it. And, and based on that, you know, at any given time, uh, we tried to rank and find the best results for that query. So we're in good hands. Uh, I, I can't say that, but they're trying to do something, right? So let's start with one of the cases that affects one of the most common themes of this season, and that's the United States versus Google. All right, essentially the Goliath versus Goliath of tech <laughs> lawsuits, right? An antitrust case the Justice Department brought in 2020 alleging that Google violated competition laws with how it distributed its dominant search engine. Almost every state is on board, too, and the matter could end up being as important to antitrust as U.S. versus Microsoft. That's right. The United States versus Microsoft Corporation is an antitrust case from 2001 in which the U.S. government accused Microsoft of illegally maintaining its monopoly position in the personal computer market, primarily through the legal and technical restrictions it put on the abilities of PC manufacturers or OEMs and personal users to uninstall Internet Explorer and use other programs such as Netscape and Java. I know there's a joke about not being able to uninstall Internet Explorer in here, but I, I don't know. I can't find it at the moment. <laughs> That's OK, Michael. Uh, the court actually ruled that Microsoft's actions constituted unlawful monopolization under Section 2 of the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. And U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit affirmed most of the district court's judgments. Economist Milton Friedman believed that the antitrust case against Microsoft set a dangerous precedent that foreshadowed increasing government regulation of what was formerly an industry that was relatively free of government intrusion and that future technological progress in the industry would be impeded as a result. I mean, I, I respect Milton Friedman's work, especially around UBI, but this prediction just didn't happen. Stifling innovation is often thrown around in these cases against regulation. But in this instance, we've seen plenty of technological innovation in the past 20 years, and little of it had to do with restricting Internet Explorer. Yeah, the interesting thing about this Google case is we're going to get to see depositions pulled from major companies, including Apple, Microsoft, Yelp, and Samsung, who have all been, so they claim, negatively affected by Google's anti-competition practices by ranking their own products above their competitors and even de-ranking their competitors at times. We'll also be keeping an eye on a separate antitrust lawsuit originally brought by a coalition of states that takes aim at Google's online ads operation, which is the heart of its profits. That case has been consolidated during the pretrial phase with a bunch of private companies um, who all had similar complaints. So all of those cases will be rolled up into one now. But the dispute has already produced a look at Google's pricing, internal project codes, and secret agreement with Facebook, which can be pretty damning. And as if that weren't enough, there's a third multi-state case 
digging into Google's actions in the mobile environment. So 2022 might not be too kind to Google. Probably not, but uh, they have been fighting these antitrust cases around the world for at least the last decade. And I don't know, none of them seem to make much of a dent, but Progress is progress, um, and if they are found anti-competitive, hopefully they're punished accordingly. The other big case is the FTC versus Facebook. Here's a clip from a CNBC segment featuring Competition Law Center director William Kovacek. As they say in the complaint, after repeated failed attempts to develop innovative mobile features for the network, Facebook instead resorted to an illegal buy or bury scheme. I wonder what you make of the amended uh, information in the complaint. The amended complaint does two things to resolve concerns that the judge had raised two months ago. The judge first was concerned that the FTC had not provided enough information to establish that Facebook indeed was a monopolist in the social networking market. The FTC added more data on that point. And the second was to elaborate the story about how Facebook had limited the ability of developers that work with it to develop products in a way that might ultimately compete against Facebook as well. The Federal Trade Commission brought this case in late 2020. The commission claims Facebook, now Meta, engaged in acquisitions designed to eliminate rivals. The case claims that the purchase of Instagram and WhatsApp were anti-competitive, and the FTC is hoping to make Meta actually spin these off. The FTC argues in its suit that Facebook obtained a monopoly in social networking and maintained it illegally by acquiring rivals. Using data from Comscore, a publicly available data analysis firm, the FTC is able to show that Facebook's share of the daily social media market had exceeded 70% since 2016. That figure actually jumps to 80% for smartphone users, 86% for tablet users, and about 98% for desktop users. It's crazy to think that it owns so much of the market share in this social space. We think of Twitter, even Snap as major players, but they really pale in comparison to Facebook's dominance. So the lawsuit alleges that Facebook was able to achieve and maintain its dominance by buying rivals, including the photo sharing app Instagram and WhatsApp instead of innovating and growing on its own merits. One upside is we might get a chronological feed out of this. Hey, that would be a big silver lining, right? Now, Facebook destroys global privacy and upends democracy and civil discourse, but hey, at least we would get that chronological feedback. Well, I don't know when you put it that way, but <laughs> we may be getting the chronological feed because of the damage that the content ranking algorithm has proven to cause. So I don't know, they're giving us the option to basically take it away. Now, finally, to complete the trifecta of antitrust lawsuits being brought against tech giants, we also have that Epic versus Apple case. Now, this case actually gave us the gift of a trial last year, bringing both Tim Cook and Tim Sweeney to the stand and resulting in a decision that could fundamentally alter how the App Store fees function. Maybe, right? Apple successfully got an appeals court to stop the implementation of the trial ruling that would have actually forced them to open up third-party payment options of which they don't take a cut. But the full appeal is still forthcoming, and Epic has also sued Google over these same fees. And this wasn't all we got out of this case. We actually heard firsthand testimony about how Apple tries to keep competition out of its own App Store. Here's a clip from The Verge covering the case. In a sworn deposition, a former App Store official named Philip Shoemaker testified that apps like Google Voice or Rhapsody Music ended up taking a surprisingly long time to get approved as Apple weighed the cost of letting a competing service onto the iPhone. He even specifically named Google Voice as an app that was removed on pretextual or basically fake grounds. 
Shoemaker was skeptical of Apple's fraud protections too, comparing the App Store to a tropical airport and saying App Review was more like the lady who greets you with a lay than the drug sniffing dog. When the lawyers asked how often he heard developers complaining that the rules were unclear, Shoemaker said it happened every day. He saw Apple as just as hypocritical about apps that sold other apps, something Apple doesn't allow but hasn't always been clear in communicating. The conflict came to a head when Shoemaker had to deal with an app called Big Fish Games. Apple wanted it removed as an app store within the app store, but Shoemaker thought the denial was arbitrary and blew up at an executive, saying there was no guideline to justify the removal. In-app stores like this aren't a security problem exactly, but they threaten Apple's control over iOS software, and the ban means there's a whole category of product that's almost impossible on iPhones. That includes the Epic Games Store, which is actually distributing software, but it also includes cloud gaming services that are ultimately just streaming video. That's a bigger problem than a single game like Fortnite or even Apple's 30% commission. Though somehow a federal judge ruled Apple did not break antitrust law, she did issue an injunction that would force Apple to allow external payment options on its app store by December 9th. That was appealed. It'll take several months to work through the court, but this could be massive changes coming to the app store. Okay, and finally, on the legal front, we have legislation that's coming on the Senate floor this week. Amy Klobuchar's American Innovation and Choice Online Act is on the committee's business meeting agenda for today, as we record actually, with a potential vote as soon as January 27th. The measure introduced last October by Senators Amy Klobuchar and Chuck Grassley would prohibit big tech companies from unfairly using their own marketplaces to overwhelm their rivals, similar to that Google lawsuit that we're seeing. It comes after years of accusations from smaller companies about Amazon's abusive treatment of its vendors and Apple's dominance in the App Store. The bill's primetime placement this week means it could move quickly through the committee. Well, there's still a lot for us to keep up with, so let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're going to actually dive into some Web3 updates right after this break. All right, before the break, we caught up on some of the antitrust updates from the legislative side. Now let's get into the side of market that is completely unregulated and is unlikely to be for years. That's crypto and Web3. And one of the stories we followed, like many others out there, was Constitution Dow. A rare piece of American history is headed for the auction block. Sotheby's auctioning off a copy of the U.S. Constitution on Thursday, and a group of crypto investors won in. The organization called Constitution Dow is raising money using a digital crypto wallet in hopes of securing the winning bid. So far, they've raised more than 800,000 Ether, which is roughly the equivalent of $3.7 million. And of course, they went on to raise $47 million, but they lost the auction to Ken Griffin and then fell apart in a spectacular manner while trying to refund the money back to the investors in the Dow. The thing that lived on was the people token, originally conceived to be the governance token of the Dow itself. Now it's just a token. Doesn't do anything, doesn't have any utility. But we've seen a lot of price activity around it, and we saw a lot of activity around it yesterday in terms of liquidations. People taking long and short positions on this particular asset got wrecked. In this instance, on both sides of, of the equation, which was pretty funny. Um, but I think the big picture here to me is like Web3 is about the tokens, right? The tokens are the sticky part of this experience. That's what keeps people coming back for more, and that's why people are still making money and losing money on a token associated with what is ostensibly 
a dead project. That was a clip from Coindesk TV discussing the people coin, the only thing left of this experiment. After the Dow lost its bid and fumbled through trying to give refunds or probably trying not to give refunds, it's hard to tell. The people coin was then sought after and even sold by the holders. Um, and there was a huge run on the market when people went from losing thousands of dollars to making thousands of dollars if they held it. And then they went back to losing again. Uh, currently, the coin is down to just six cents from its high of 18 cents. Uh, it's been a very stable decline as well without much chance of going back up, at least as things stand right now. Well, it was an exciting experiment. It does go to show that in order for these projects to land smoothly, the same amount of work that went into standing them up needs to be put into shutting them down, right? It's clear the team just lost focus even when they were stewarding $47 million of investments. Now, we also talked a lot about NFTs this season as one of the hot new commodities in the Web3 ecosystem. And Michael, I, I heard that you bought some NFTs recently. Yeah, I was playing around. I bought some Solana NFTs, which is kind of the emerging market alternative to the Ethereum NFT market. Ethereum has birthed giants like OpenSea, which is now worth $13 billion, um, and popular NFT projects such as the Bored Ape Yacht Club. Ah, yes, the Bored Ape Yacht Club, a collection of 10,000 ape avatars that individually act as tickets to an online social club. And it's become one of the most prominent brands in the NFT space. And now the NFTs have generated more than $1 billion in total sales. And this NFT actually gives you a pass to be part of like an exclusive club in real life even. In fact, in October, they threw a huge party in New York City on a yacht where ownership of an ape was your pass to get into the event. Here's marketer Eric Sue talking about attending that event. Make some noise for yourself, Board and Yacht Club. There's also a warehouse party that had, um, I, I believe Lil Baby was there, Chris Rock was there, um, and the Strokes were there as well. And so uh, there are 2,000 people at that warehouse party. So that, that was kind of cool. And uh, I, I met a lot of interesting people that have apes too, right? It's it's You feel like you're at the ground floor of a community and you're all down to kind of just help each other out because you're part of this, you're part of this community. And, um, you know, I, I thought that was pretty cool. Well, we'll talk about this more in the next season, which, spoiler alert, will be all about crypto and Web3 projects, where we're going to take you behind the scenes of several notable projects. But the Board Ape Yacht Club, they've done a phenomenal job at marketing, that's for sure. And now they count celebrities like Jimmy Fallon, Eminem, Steph Curry. Um, all, all of those are now owners. And of course, that continues to drive up the price. Here's Eric Sue again. So when you think about what they've done, the, the Board Ape Yacht Club, from a marketing and branding perspective, it's, it's kind of a masterclass because... You know, they they did really well. They didn't just say, hey, we're just going to pocket all the money. They're continuing to invest in community. They're continuing to invest in people because they know if they build a really strong community flyway, more and more people are going to talk about it. And they're just going to get stronger and stronger, right? So in less than a year, they've done over a billion in, in volume. And um, it's because they've done community really well. Whereas CryptoPunks, on the other hand, I, I believe they've kind of botched it from a community standpoint. But even if you're not into NFTs, just looking at what they've done, just observing from afar, this is a good lesson in how you can cultivate community and use it as a mechanism for retention, use it as a mechanism for acquisition as well. And there's something to be said about celebrities that are buying this because each time a celebrity buys it, you know, more people are become more interested in the Board Ape Yacht Club, okay? So NFTs are having a moment, but this is all speculative investment. So there's no guarantee that the value will hold over the long run. And many of them haven't. I mean, with these hype cycles, it's often hard to tell exactly who, if anyone, are going to be the winners on the other side. <laughs>
Yes, true. With that, let's take a quick break. So while many are enjoying the riches of the bubbling NFT space, not everything is so rosy. Miramax <laughs> is filing a lawsuit against Quentin Tarantino for copyright infringement by selling NFTs based on the screenplay for Pulp Fiction. So Tarantino announced at NFT NYC that he'd be auctioning NFTs of exclusive scenes from the film based on excerpts from his original handwritten script and accompanied by commentary. That was a clip from Coindesk TV discussing this Miramax and Tarantino lawsuit over Tarantino launching NFTs of screenshots of the original handwritten script. Uh, Miramax is claiming they own the rights to this. Tarantino is saying NFTs didn't exist when this contract was made, and he has the right to screenshot his handwritten notes if he would like to. Now, Tarantino's trying to sell seven scanned digital copies of this handwritten original script, which includes deleted scenes with audio commentary. The NFTs would have content only visible to the owner in addition to a publicly viewable portion. The date of the auction has yet to be announced, but Miramax says that when they signed a contract with Tarantino in 1993, he signed over the rights to the film, with the exception that Tarantino kept limited, quote, reserved rights. Those reserved rights include a clause saying that Tarantino has the rights to, quote, print publication of the film. This would be one of the first lawsuits to make it to court and may help give some clarity on how copyright law will be interpreted within this new online medium. And this isn't the only case surrounding NFTs. Hermes has named Metaburkins, an NFT creator, in a trademark infringement lawsuit. Rockefeller Records sued co-founder Damien Dash, seeking to stop him from auctioning off the copyright to Jay-Z's debut album, Reasonable Doubt, as an NFT. There are fake board apes and CryptoPunk projects popping up daily, which may lead to DMCA takedowns. It's really a whole new world. And then there's the money laundering aspect. Buying an NFT from oneself using illicit funds is an easy way to move money while claiming the funds were used for legitimate art investment, right? And then you actually avoid taxes in the process. Uh, an example was demonstrated by former USA Today journalist Isaiah McCall in his blog earlier this year, where he explained actually how to do this. McCall wrote, if you have a million dollars in illegal money, you would spend a million dollars on your own NFT. You could do this yourself or use a trusted third-party account. Then you just resell the trash for nothing and bank the profits. Okay, so Mike, as we wrap up, what's your takeaway from this antitrust season? Yeah, well, you know, obviously we talked a lot about, you know, how we as a society have had a breakdown in trust happen from all of these things that, um, you know, normally we would talk about as big positives and I think it is important that we sort of pointed out these things and pointed out the downsides. But but look, we should still be advocates of tech, right? All of this tech and innovation, it's brought us so many good things. Nothing good comes without some bad to it. So I think none of us should necessarily overlook the bad, but we also should be reminded of all of the good, right? I completely agree. There's a lot of really positive advancements happening. I think the one thing that I find a bit discouraging that it takes so long for the the legal side to catch up to the tech advances. I feel like we're never going to actually have a regulated market as they're regulating the problems from five, 10 years ago while we have new problems popping up daily today. Yeah, good points for sure, but it's not all bad. You know, nothing ever is. A lot of exciting advancements that are coming. And and in fact, we're going to dive into many of them next season where we take you behind the scenes of some exciting crypto and Web3 projects. And we could learn more about where the internet may be headed in the next three to five years. It's going to be exciting. We're going to learn a ton that'll be coming up in the next month or so. In the meantime, 
we'll still be bringing you new episodes every week. We sure will. Look, for Michael Saka, I'm Mike Belsito, and you've been listening to Rocketship.fm. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. If you can, take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps out the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network, and if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to thepodglomerate.com to see the full show listings. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. Go to productcollective.com and get access to our weekly newsletter, live video interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot more. Again, just go to productcollective.com.